This is the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. And today's documentary is about an event that turned Irish gambling upside down. Narrated by Conor Keane, this is A Very Irish Coup. All stop for the night's opening contest. On the 22nd of October 1978, the Irish gambling world awoke to news that made them think they were still dreaming. A daring betting gang have taken the bookies to the cleaners. Fifteen punters mounted the operation, resulting in huge odds being paid out on the hot favourite. It made news across the English-speaking world. The bookies had been beaten. The betting coup came in the third race at a Greyhound meeting in the tiny village of Mullingar, County Westmead. It happened in what is known in the business as a coup. We're still re- re- rejoicing it because it was the most perfect job that was ever done. The job was carried out by a group dubbed the South of Ireland Gang by the media. A bunch of ordinary punters who had pulled off an extraordinary feat. There was a great buzz after the thing anyway. Just like when you, when you try something and you succeed, our decision was right and our judgement was right. So the next part then was to get paid. <laughs> the bookies were faced with an eye-watering payout of between two and three million euro in today's money. Every other loophole, the bookmakers had it closed. And this was the last loophole that was left. They had fallen victim to one of the most audacious coups in the history of betting that from conception to execution took just six days. And it all started with a couple of old friends and a dog called Bally Donald Sam. Con Murphy had this, this, this brilliant greyhound, his long-distance greyhound called Bally Donald Sam. And uh, Con was the main man in this. Like Con, Con was a great character. Con would light up a room when he'd come into it. That's one of the coup's foot soldiers, Danny Brown, a master printer by trade, originally from Abbey Field, but now living in Mona Lean outside Limerick City. There's a great Irish word that would describe Con, and it's Macanta. Macanta has several meanings. It means modest, gentle, honest, genuine, or childlike. And when I say childlike, I don't mean innocent and acting like a child. It means being young at heart and not taking life too seriously. And that was Con. Con was the man around the doll. But then one of the other people involved, Eric Brown. And I would liken Eric's personality to Con's. Eric wouldn't take life too seriously. The youngest bookie in Ireland and probably in the world, and he started off, I'd say, in the 60s, when Ballybun and Dog Tracks opened. But that was Eric. There was other characters involved in this all came together in Jack O'Rourke's pub to plan this coup. It was Spike Murphy, Jack O'Rourke, the last time I saw him, warned the pub and he was in it. My father, who worked in Jack O'Rourke's bar, Hector was his name. He was pa- pa- Patrick Brownborn, but he was never known as anything other Hector. But my father always liked Con and Eric, you know, and even though my father was far older than the boys, he was still like them. He, was, he, he didn't take life too seriously. Almost all of those who took part in the daring betting coup at Mullingar Greyhound Track on a wet October Saturday night in 1978 were from Listowel in County Kerry and Abbey Field in County Limerick. Two towns just 10 miles apart, connected by road and the River Field. Many had been friends since childhood. These were people that I went to school with and that, that lived, we, we knew from around the town or from Listowel. There's a great bond between Listowel and Abbey Field always. I think I'd know it was it Conor Wolland or, or John B that said that 
I've been feeling and that tail should be part of carry it. You know, the culture is the same. And that was it, the link between Listowel and Abbey Field. You know, so there was great camaraderie between both groups of people. For more than 40 years, the men and women who pulled off the Belly Donald Sam coup have held their counsel, only disclosing bits and pieces of what happened in a haphazard way. But now they are telling the story, the whole story, for the very first time. So, what was the chink in the bookie's armour that was to expose them to losses of between 2 and 3 million euro at 2020 prices? Sitting in his kitchen in Abbey Field, Tim Spike Murphy, then a part-time bookmaker, explains it was spotted by his late brother, Con Murphy, one Monday night at Limerick Greyhound Track. It was a mere five days before the plotters and their accomplices set off by convoy from West Limerick and North Kerry to the track in Mullingar, to pull off the coup of a lifetime. One Monday night in the Limerick Trek, we were down there, my brother Con, Con Murphy, Connie McMahon and myself, and somebody backed the dog below and he was returning six to four or five to four. In the betting world, when you put money on anything, a horse, a football team, or in this case, a dog, a bookie will give you what are known as odds. Odds determine what the bookie promises to pay you if you win. For example, the bookie might offer odds of 10 to 1. That means if you place a bet of £1 with the bookie on, say, dog number 3, and he wins, you win £10. 10 times the amount you bet, 10 to 1. If you lose, as most people do, the bookie keeps all your money. Three in second place, crack on, crack on, six new product in third. Bookies do not want to lose. They want to hold on to your cash, not give you theirs. So... They're extremely careful to make sure they don't expose themselves to having to pay out too much money on any winner. Bookies try to take everything into account. If a horse, a dog, a football team is good or having a good run of form, then they'll have a very good chance of winning and the bookies will keep their odds very low. The dog in Spike's story was obviously one of the favourites to win. The bookie set his odds at 6-4 to four, or about 1.5-1, to one. put down a pound and you stand to win just £1.50. Let's get back to Limerick Racetrack that night in 1978. The same man, a friend of his, had a tenor on the dog in Alf Hogan's in Listowel at two odds, and he paid four to one. So if you backed him in Limerick, you got six to four with the bookmakers, and you got four to one in the tote. Spike mentioned something called the tote. This is another way of betting. The tote is run by the state, not by individual bookies. It's more like the National Lottery. People's bets are placed in a pool and if your dog wins, you share that pool with the other winners. The tote is a mathematical system. It doesn't ask if the dog is good or bad, has it ever won a race or even does it have four legs or three. The tote just looks at how much money has been bet on a dog but this leaves room for manipulation. The fewer bets on your dog, the more you'll get if he wins because the tote reflects that the dog is unpopular and possibly not very good. That means that if a great dog, even the favourite, was running, and for some illogical reason, only one person decided to bet on him at the racetrack, his odds would be very big, even though he's the most likely to win. Of course, this never happens. Or at least it didn't, until the evening of the 21st of October, 1978. In the car, on the way home that night from Limerick Track, the lads thought they had spotted something and the wheels started turning inside their heads. We didn't say I wasn't coming back in the car that night. 
we discussed it, the variation in the price, and Con piped up in him and he said, there's room for a stroke here. And one bud borrowed another, and we went for a, a drink afterwards in Chakorok's bar, and we started developing the, the project. What would we do and how could we benefit from what we had just come across? Bets on the tote are normally taken at a line of small betting windows at the racetrack before the race. But, and it's a crucial but, in 1978, most bookies' offices around the country would take a bet at tote odds, agreeing to pay out whatever the odds were paid out by the tote on the course. This was a safe enough proposition for the bookies, because if a dog was good, let's say the favourite, people would place a lot of money on him at the course, so the odds would be low, and the bookie wouldn't have to pay out too much, even if he won. Unless, of course, for some reason, almost nobody bet on the favourite at the track, then the odds would be huge. It's nearly impossible to trick the bookies. They'll spot a scam a mile off. They're perceptive, clever, sentient beings, although many punters might dispute that. But you can play a mathematical system such as the tote by getting it to believe the bookie's favourite is useless and should be very big odds to win. The real stroke is to get the bookies, who are far too shrewd to be manipulated, to put their fate in the tote which can be manipulated. As they sat in Jack O'Rourke's bar in Abbey Field, sipping their pints, the lads pondered how they could make this happen. It was Monday the 16th of October 1978, just five days before they set out to fleece the bookies. Whatever the plan was going to be, they needed a dog, and a very good one at that. Con had a dog in the semi-final of the, the Cesar de Mullingar, and he was one of the best up-and-coming dogs in the country, staying dogs. And we talked about that. The dog was Bally Donald Sam, a handsome, slick, black greyhound with narrow features, weighing in at between 77 and 78 pounds. He turned out to be one of the finest staying greyhounds of his generation. Bally Donald Sam was running at a track in Mullingar on the coming Saturday night, the 21st of October. What the plotters wanted to do was to make sure that just one bet went down on their dog on the tote at the racetrack. This would lead to big odds and Bally Donald Sam, even though he was the hot favourite to win the race. If they could artificially create odds of, say, 500 to 1, any bet that was put down in any bookie at tote odds across the country would have to be paid out at those odds, 500 to 1. A pound here, two pounds there, and multiple shops across the country wouldn't be long accumulating a small fortune for the lads behind the coup. Every other loophole, the bookmakers had it closed. And this was the last loophole that was left in the system. And fair play to the boys, they coughed it. And they had the dog that probably would, would be good enough for it. That happened Monday night. They came to me on a Wednesday. They said to me, how does the tort work and this and that dirt thing? That's Eric Brown from Lestole. In 1978, he was a family butcher and sometimes bookmaker. Was a gambler, there was nothing hooky, nothing... Oh, nothing hooky whatsoever. This was the only thing left and to be a dream to pull it off. For the rest of the group, Eric's knowledge of the system was pure gold dust. But time was of the essence. It was now Wednesday, the 18th of October, leaving just three days to pull off one of the greatest coups in the history of Irish betting. When they came to me, they wanted to know like, how the tort work. And the first thing I, say, I said to them, 
to go back and case the joint and see how many windows are there. I Where said, is this now? In, in Mullingar. I said, go back and case the joint. So they went up and they went up two nights and they looked at it and there was five windows there and there was four of them open. But if there was a busy night in the fifth would open, then we had to figure out how many people we'd put in that window. So that was one part of the plan. To one way or another, put queues of their own people at the windows of the racetrack on the night of the race to stop bets going down from other punters. The second part was to place bets of up to two pounds with bookies around the country to see if they'd give them toad odds. Little did the bookies know if the plan worked in Mullingar, those odds would be colossal. It was time to test the theory, with little more than 72 hours to go before Ballydonnell Sam entered the traps in Mullingar. What we said we'd have to do a dry run then, see would they accept the bitch because we had never tried it before. Spike Murphy. So I went to Cork on the Wednesday and I went around. There was all independent bookmakers that I wanted like now, like Paddy Powers. And there was no Paddy Powers that him. Or Boyle Sports or anything. You're all independents about the place. So I went into about five or six of them and I was having two pounds win and, and two pounds forecast just to see. I picked two short dogs in Shelburne Park that night and all the bets were accepted. So the, we were set in for the, the project only to try and develop it and we spent the week putting it together. And there was no set formula or anything. We were only just, we sat down at night and we worked it down and uh, that's how the thing started. The dry run on Wednesday worked. Most bookies accepted bets at toad odds. But then there was the task of somehow unobtrusively blocking five toad windows at the track, meaning almost no money being placed on their dog, the favourite, Bally Donald Sam, sending his odds into the stratosphere. Blocking five windows at the racetrack and getting their bets down around the country was going to take manpower. It was now the Friday night of the 20th of October, 1978, the night before the coup, and a most unlikely troop of 60 volunteers was mustered to do battle with the bookies. Eric Brown. The crew were everyone and anyone. They didn't know the first thing about race, and I just went to them, there's a job coming on. They didn't know if it was a boxing match or what it was, but I said, there's a, a bit of a coup coming on. They were mad for it. They didn't want to know, and I said, I don't know myself which was a lie, I know, all right. So the, there was solicitors there, there was teachers there, there was a couple of inseminators there, there was health inspectors, there was dollars, there was every make and breed that you could think of. All, all mad to go, and, and they were all mad for going because it was a bit of fun. Danny Brown, then living in South County Dublin, only got wind of the caper with a little more than 24 hours to go. The first I, I knew about this was I, I was I got a phone call at work in, in Tala on the Friday in, in October 78 from Spike, Tim Murphy. And uh, he asked me, was I doing anything on the, on the following day, on the Saturday? And I said I was working. Spike straight away said, don't worry about that bus. We'll fix up all expenses. So I asked him then, I said, what's involved, Spike? He said, no, I'll fill you in that tomorrow. There's no need to, to go into that, no, he said. So that was typical Spike, of course. I, I partly guessed, like, that there's something to do with our dogs or something. So anyway, next morning, Spike arrived out of our house in Ballantyre 
and we wouldn't long in this house. We would have to buy a new house in Ballantyre. And um, Joseph and myself, well, my wife, were, were in the, the sitting room when Spike arrived in anyway. And we had a black and white television in the corner. And the first thing Spike said to, to Joseph was, Joe, you'll have a colour TV there Monday morning. Right? Joe, to be honest, at that stage, got a bit worried, but she, she, no, no one Spike and ourselves what we could be up to. So, so um, that, was, that was the start of it for me. In 1978, there were no mobile phones, no internet, no gambling apps or online betting. Nobody in the betting world would have believed that this group of seemingly inoffensive punters could execute a task of this scale and beat the system. Over a pint in John B's bar, Spike recalls the Saturday morning of the coup, just hours before Bally Donald Sam was due to race in Mullingar. Well, I started off in Dublin. I went to Dublin that morning. I left every field around five o'clock and I drove to Dublin. I had worked in Dublin for six years. I didn't know where the churches were, but I knew where all the betting shops were. And I knew Dublin like the back of my hand. For the crew to work, the crew had to place several hundred pounds in small wages of less than two pounds with bookmakers around the country, so as not to draw any attention to the amount of money being placed on Belly Donald Sam. This part of the plan was to be executed on the morning of the race, with just hours to go before the off. Anyway, it was decided that we, we would start in uh, Greystone, the south side. Danny Brown. And uh, work our way into O'Connell Street. And if possible, hit a bit of the north side. But a lot of betting offices between, between Greystones and O'Connell Street. So uh, we started off as soon as the betting office opened, I think around half nine or ten o'clock, whatever it was. Spike Murphy inveigled his first cousin, Breda Lane, to take part. Based in Dublin and working for the city council, Breda was signed up to drive Spike around Dublin on the morning of the race as he placed his bets with Danny Brown as his lookout. It was not to be her only involvement in the coup. I was driving, uh, Spike and, and Danny were, uh, said, drop me at this betting shop, we're going in to have a bet. Uh, I let them off, I stayed in the car and waited for them. Uh, and we went from we started in Greystones, we went into Bray, and we came through Dunleary all the way into O'Connell Street, stopping off at betting shops that I was uh, told where to stop and where to pull out again, and off we went again. Um, and that went on for most of the day. My job was to, to Spike would place the bet in, in the betting, off, betting shop, and he would write down two pounds win on uh, Bally Donald Sam, two pounds win on this dog that was going in Shelburne Park, and one pound double. And the reason the Shelburne Park dog was put in was not to draw too much attention to Barry Donald Sam. But the main thing on that docket had to be that he wrote on it, Toad Odds. And if the bookmaker accepted that, he could see Toad Odds. That was all right. But my job was to look around the betting shop, because in that time there weren't any screens around the betting shop. There were these notices up about the bookmaker's rules. And I was to, to check all those and to see if there was anything regarding Toad Odds on them, or that, that you'd be prohibited from backing the toe rods, anything like that. With Danny and Spike covering off the East Coast, other teams were dispatched across the country. A group set out from Abbeyfield and went down to, to Newmarket and Cantork and into Cork and did all betting shops along there. There was another group that went down by Waterford into Dungarvan and up part of Wexford. Then there was a group that went up by Limerick, Innes, up to Galway. And then there was a further group that did up around Mayo, Monaghan, and across the border counties. 
So it, the country was well covered. As that Saturday unfolded, the money went down quietly on Belly Donald Sam all over the country. The majority of bookies accepted the bets, promising to pay whatever the tote odds were on the course that night. The bookies felt comfortable that so much money would be placed on Belly Donald Sam, the hot favourite, at the tote windows of the course they wouldn't have to pay out too much even if he won. Little did they know, the bookies were sleepwalking into a carefully crafted ambush. Although the group were tough, they weren't entirely heartless, and one even tipped off a friendly bookmaker. Oh, yes, before I left that day, then. Eric Brown. There was a bookmaker, a friend of mine, let's all out of a Broderick, and I went down to him and I says, whatever you do, don't take no bets today at Tortards at any track. And he says, well, I don't know why no, but don't do it. So there was a man staying below in his house in William Street, Paddy Daly from Lichtner, and I said to Paddy, when Alf Hogan's office just about to close this evening, go in and uh, wrote out a bit, have 20 pounds win on, on um, Bally Donald's summer towards. So he done it for me anyway. And the following day, when I went down there and I got Liam Healy, the uh, photographer, I got him to go down and take photographs of the limits in the shop in case they changed the limits because shops were closed that time of a Sunday. Liam went down and took him anyway, and there were no limits at Tortots, so I know I was right. I printed 20 grand in for myself. Back in the car in Dublin, Danny and Spike had their bets placed with the aid of their unsuspecting driver, Breda Lane. It was time to get to the track in Mullingar. And then I was told I was driving them to Mullingar. That's, I knew where the, the dog was running there that night, so I thought we were just going down to see the dog running. Had no details at all, because the details were very sketchy, and I was asked not to ask any questions. All for the, night's the teams converged on Mullingar Doctor less than an hour before the race. Bally Donald Sam was presented for the pre-race weigh-in by trainer Francis Murray's handlers, totally unaware of the betting coup that was on the way. All eyes were on those crucial five-toed windows at the track. If they could be taken out of action for the 13-minute interval between races, the coup plotters were in for a substantial payday. Eric and Con, part-time bookies themselves, managed the operation. Eric and Con and two bookmakers, they were fairly sharp men and, and, and knew how to... Uh, they were good judge of, of, of dogs and horses, but they were better judges of human beings, I think. You know. Teams in place they had to execute their plan to make sure the windows at the track were so casually congested that just a single bet would go down on Bally Donald Sam. We had a map drawn of, of, the, of the thing and who'd be in what wind and who'd be in the other window. See, there was one pound window and that was the window to get most on. I picked my crew anywhere for the pound window for us to be cute enough and for us to do nothing about betting. Then I, I put them on, on the, the other windows. I just told them to go up and back every dog in the race bar will say number five. Don't back number five. But uh, we gave them the money then. And uh, we gave them the brown fivers and the blue tennis was, uh, and, and the red 20 pound notes. And, and um, if any of them had given a 20 pound note, if he got the change back, he put out another tenner then after he never used the change he got. He said it was for a different person. So we brought the hats going to get change. And there are no other change. Finishing up, it couldn't have been smoother. There was a pal of mine, Bob Sullivan, Jack O'Rourke, I him. He called me and he says, one of your men is after double crossing us. He knew that Bob's was one of my crowd from the store. And I says, there's no one of my men in double cross. I know that, Tim. They're not that type of people. 
and he says, follow him and see. I followed him and he was below the rails anyway. And I said, Bob, did you back a belly down? And I said, I did no such thing, he says. And he pulled out his dockets and had the 20 pence win him. She said, he was not first day. I took him back up to the wind anyway, in, put him in bottom front of the queue, to go up and cancel the bit. And the one says, I can't, I can't, I can't cancel the bit. Well, you get killed, says Bob, by you fella told me back a different dog. And the next thing, it was going on and on, and she decided to take it back. With the minutes ticking down to the nine o'clock race time, the team became concerned that a rarely used tote window might be opened. Eric conjured up a novel strategy, just in case. So I took one, one fella out of our bunch. Freddie says, what have I to do? If that window opens, I says, if anyone comes near him, lamp him, I said. Start the row and, and disappear then, but start the row if, if that window opens. Well, there was a lot of shuffling and, yeah, what is going on at, at, at the tote and why, what is the delay? Yeah, there was, you could see people were getting a bit anxious uh, about uh, what the hell was, was going on and why weren't they getting up to the windows. But people were placing their bets and they couldn't really do anything about it. And there were five of us, maybe six of us in the queue anyway, uh, that never got bets on at all that night. So it was only about two or three people because they were so good at what they'd been asked to do <laughs> that nobody else got near the place. You know, they were saying, well, my auntie nearly told me have 20 cent bet and they'd hand in, say, a 20 euro note and they'd get the change back. Somebody else uh, would say, well, I'll have each way with number or number two, number three, uh, and reverse that now. Everything, everything was dependent on the greyhound Bally Donald Sam winning. What if the whole thing was up in smoke if he'd lost like? It was raining that night anyway, and Bally Donald was, was not an early paced dog. He was a dog that he kicked on from about halfway, but he was a great track dog. And he, he would not he wouldn't cut in at bends or anything else, he'd wait for his turn. But he, this night he was a bit tardy away anyway, and down the back straight he was three to four lengths down, it was only a six hundred yard race. And he got a clear run and turned around the last bend, he was still two off. And there's a good long straight in Mullingar. Yeah. But we know like that once halfway up the straight he was going to win like. But he got up to win by half a lead going away like. It's all in front. Three and second place. Their dog had won. And Bally Donald Sam won at odds of 945 to 1 on the tote, a record that stands to this day. He was returned as a 2 to 1 on hot favourite by the bookies. Eric sent his man to collect from the tote. Uh, the fellow that had the 20 pins in and the winner, his name was G- Jimmy Collins. And um, Kerry were after winning the other some few weeks before that. He went up to collect the 190 pound or whatever it was. Because now they told him to one end for his money. And she said to Jimmy, uh, are you from Kerry? And he wasn't that, he was across the river from Kerry, but he was near enough to it. And he said, I am. Why, he said, because you're the smartest people in the world down there. She said to Jimmy. Bally Donald Sam did not let his connections down. The next thing anyway, the, the alarm bells went off in the track, I don't know what they were, and you went when they saw the, the dividend in the toast. I, I'd be into lots of tracks. Had you had alarm bells? Never, before? I never had the alarm bells in the thing, and, and I, before or since. <laughs> and uh, the alarm went off anyway. <laughs> and the fellas went along skipping out of it. The storm went off, it was like there was a fire in the, in the thing. They knew there was something happened. I said the machines went upside down and everything. Mm-hmm. But, Con Murphy and myself anyway ran for the for the styles. We jumped over the styles and we ran downtown into a pub and we gone down the street, Con was wrong. 
A grand for every pound, a grand for every pound. The race was over, the, the, the odds were announced uh, and suddenly the penny dropped. This is a mad coup altogether. I got, I got a bit scared, to be honest with you, and I thought, let me out of here fast. The group dispersed quickly, their mission successfully completed in Mullingar and everything above board. They set out on their journey home and began to plan what they would do with their winnings. We met up in Burr. Oh yeah, in the sunrise in, in, in Burr. We came in anyway and the, the woman was delighted. I said it was a quiet night in the pub and about 50 to 60 people came in and she thought we were coming for a wedding. But we didn't declare where we were coming from. But you'll see all about it in the papers tomorrow morning. <laughs> First of all, we were going to have a, a victory dance in the Devon Inn outside Abbey Field. Then we were going to go to Canary Islands and on holidays with um, two buses and we were taking everyone with us. And we were going to bind the buses. And the only argument we had that night when we got drunk was who owned the buses when we came back. That was the only argument we had because we had money to burden it was who was going to get the buses. Others who took part in the coup were returning to Dublin, Danny Brown. When we were coming back from, from uh, Mullingar, we stopped in Kinnegad and uh, the, 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 the chap that was putting on the, the bits on the black dog and that had all the tickets was, was in, in uh, the pub with us. And Dennis Murphy, Spike's brother, the Lord's mercy name, was an accountant at the time. And Sp- he was explaining to us in the pub the way the payout would be for everyone who was, took part in this. And he said it was like a pyramid. And the guys that organised it in the pub in Jack Rourke's were at the top of the pyramid and it worked its way down. So in other words, the guys that were at the windows putting on the tickets were at the, the base of the pyramid. So, but the guy that put on all the, t- all the, um, the money and had all the tickets, he pulled out, he had about 30 or 40 tickets, whatever, two tickets. So he said, Dennis, Dennis, um, I want to move up to the top of that pyramid bus, he said, like, I've all the tickets here, like, you know, so Dennis, being diplomatic, he pacified him anyway, you know, but that was all right until the next morning anyway. Brie Delane was taking it easy the following Sunday morning. So we were having a lie on, but anyway, the radio always went on in the morning when we got up, uh, or when we woke up, listening, and the next thing, the news headlines came on. A daring betting gang have taken the bookies to the cleaners. Fifteen punters mounted the operation, resulting in huge odds being paid out on the hot favourite. Big headline, big betting coup in Mullingar last night. The dog involved was Bally Donald Sam at Mullingar, County West Meath, on Saturday night. He won by one and a half lengths at the starting price of one to two favourite, but the tote paid staggering odds of 945 to one. A police spokesman said last night, the matter is under investigation. Uh, guards are investigating and the fraud squad are being brought in. Nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> now what was I going to do? How was I going to tell them in work that I, that I had got myself into serious trouble? Would they know I was there or how they were going to get to, to uh, actually trace us, etc., etc., etc. The coup had made national headlines. It was all over the radio and the newspapers, here in Ireland, England and beyond. The betting coup came in the third race at a Greyhound meeting in the tiny village of Mullingar, County Westmeath. The gang blocked all five windows at the tote office and wouldn't let anyone else place a bet. To be a large-scale betting coup, the first of its kind in this country, and one that could cost bookmakers thousands of pounds, was executed at Mullingar Greyhound track on Saturday night. 
Danny Brown also caught up with his friends the following morning in a flat in Rat Mines on the south side of Dublin. So we arrived in anyway and I had bought the Independence, the Sunday Independent Dublin edition on the way down. I never looked at it, you know, but we were inside in the, the flat anyway and uh, my friend in Dublin anyway opened the paper and he said, did you see this? He said, right out the front of the Independent was big coup in Mullingar, fraud squad called in. So with that, my friend with all the tickets, he said, oh, big God, what are those tickets? He said, I want to burn them. So he wanted to get from the top of the pyramid now fairly fast. It was the bookmakers facing a massive payout who called in the fraud squad. And some of the foot soldiers began to get worried. My sister arrived into us and she said, oh, my God, now what's going to happen? I know that my, my father uh, down here in Arapil had heard about it and... Um, I said, oh, my God, all the, my family are going to be out of jobs. <laughs> and then we'd be going to Montjoy to visit them. I, I knew my cousins and I knew there had to be some trickery up. where they were, We weren't sure of what, what the, the details were, but you could know they were up to some tricks. Uh, my father was uh, a bit anxious about his family being involved in a betting coup. Nothing like that had ever happened in our family before. So anyway, he, he worked down in town and... Um, he, he used to go down to see my aunt, who's uh, Dennis Murphy and Spike's mother, uh, every day at lunchtime and, and have a, a bite to eat maybe there sometimes. Uh, and um, anyway, she was really, she was very, very worried about uh, her, her, her boys being involved in this betting coup and what might happen to them. Uh, were they going to end up in Mount Joy? Uh, were they all going to be in court? The Gardaí did carry out a thorough investigation. Guard Inspector Marta McCarthy, now retired, was one of the investigating officers. I was a detective guard uh, stationed at Listowel at the time, uh, which would have been around uh, November 1978 or thereabouts. I can recall that I got um, a request from the Gardaí Mullingar via the usual gathered channels down that um, with a number of named local people that may or may not know something about this uh, alleged incident uh, involving the dog at the at the track in Mullingar and asked me would I interview them. On memory now, there would have been about four four people or thereabouts um, <clears throat> that were there and uh, I saw all four, um, including one well-known local man, uh, Eric Brown, and um, a colourful character locally and nice man. And um, uh, Eric gave me his version of events that took place there, as did um, two of the others. And uh, I compiled all that into a gather report and I submitted that to uh, back up again via the usual route and that landed with the guards in Mullingar. They, in turn, pieced together their end of it from the complaints made by the bookies to them. And that went to the DPP as far as I know, although I got no direct communication from the DPP but as I understood it, in any event, wherever it went, it would have gone, somebody would have given the direction to it. Normally it would be the DPP. And uh, there was no prosecution arising out of the complaint that was made. In your opinion, do you think, was there a case to answer? Or like, did they just play the system? Uh, well, my memory of it at the time was that uh, I would have suspected maybe there was a bit of roguery involved, but a bit of roguery now is far removed from from a criminal offence and um, 
I did with a lot of, of fraud investigations at the time, and this was this wouldn't be in the ballpark. But um, there would have been a little bit of roguery involved here and there. But, however, there was no criminal offence, in my opinion. Now, it was time for the conspirators to collect. The bookmakers who called in the fraud squad did not want to pay out. The money involved was just too big. What would happen when the coup members went to collect their winnings? Spike, who placed a lot of the bets, was first on the road. I went to Dublin anyway, and uh, I stopped it off in Dunleary and I was refused payment, and I went to Blackrock, and I was refused payment. It was to be the same all over the country. The bookies refused to pay up, with a few notable exceptions. One court firm, I'll give them 10 out of 10 anyway, John and Mahoney is, they paid the full amount anyway, the 100 to 1, which was their limit. And, and uh, we had about six quid on with them, and they paid us the 600 quid. The failure to get paid had ramifications for the foot soldiers too. The coup is over. Mm-hmm. Getting paid... <laughs> yeah. Were you disappointed? Were you, what were you promised anyway? Was I was promised. Well, I was promised that obviously there'd be there'd be something in it for me because here I am driving around Dublin and petrol was scarce and expensive at the time, uh, and then to drive down to Mullingar and drive back and I was pro- oh yeah I would be doing nicely out of it. Um, maybe I might get a new television as I say. I'd certainly get my expenses for the day. Uh, but time went on and and um, I never even got my petrol money. Unfortunately. <laughs> At the end of the day, a few bookies coughed up, bringing their takings to just £1,200. A far cry from the £400,000 to £600,000 they expected. But it was still enough to cover their outlay. But would there have been an investigation if Bally Donald Sam had lost? There's an old rule with the bookmakers, thou shall not win. <laughs> The only mistake we made is we hadn't the money to go to the High Court. If we went to the High Court, there's no judge in the world that'll go against us because we'd done nothing wrong. The trainer didn't know anything about it. The dog didn't know anything about it. The fellas going up to backing him didn't know anything about it, but a few of us. We stopped no one going into the thing. People couldn't get in because we were still putting on bits. There was nothing in the world wrong. It was the most perfect job that was ever pulled off. It was perfect. In 2020, betting is a global business, dominated by mega companies quoted on the world stock exchanges, with yottabytes of data, data scientists, and teams of risk managers. Eric and Spike are adamant that betting coups such as Belly Donald Sam are a thing of the past, and punters today would find it hard, if not impossible, to do unsuccessfully. I said they're going to find it very hard. I'd love to see him do it, because there's a great kick out of it. I won money bookmaking and, and things that. And, and it was like I never won anything like pulling off a coup. It's, it, it's a great feeling. Bookmakers now, you see, unlike that time when you went into the shop, all they did was take photographs of the bits. There was no computers arranging to track the bits, like the technology, you know, like the multinationals have, because they can track a bit now in a split second and see the liability coming up and see a trend building in their head offices. The fellas paid to to track these, so you wouldn't be able to do that at all, no. Spike, Eric and the boys came back at the bookies, but they are slow to talk about the coups they got paid for. Did you have revenge on the bookies at any stage? We did, we did yeah, but, but uh, I can't tell you why, for uh, special re- for uh, other reasons. We got him back, all right, but like in a small way. This this was one. All the loopholes were closed. 
That was the last loophole that was left in the bookmaking part of it, you know. But um, we got him back once or twice after, but in a small way. Would you have taken much off him? Uh, I'd say a couple of hundred grand. That wasn't a small way. The masterminds behind the Ballydonald Sam coup might not have been paid, but it gave them immense satisfaction that they executed the coup to perfection. Eric Brown explains just what it meant to them. What was the greatest feeling in the world? It was like, it was like having sex or Kerry getting a goal in the last minute of an All-Ireland to win the All-Ireland. It was as good as that. This week's documentary, A Very Irish Coup, was narrated by Conor Keane. It was produced by Conor Keane and Donal O'Herlihy. Sound supervision was by Liam O'Brien. Until the next time, thanks for listening.